This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender this is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. PETA, or People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, has made headlines for decades with their aggressive activism fighting to put an end to the cruel and inhumane treatment of animals in circuses, zoos, laboratories, as well as in the fashion and factory farm industries. PETA has over three million members and supporters, making them one of the largest animal rights organizations in the world. Recently, PETA has been working to defeat the so-called ag-gag laws. These laws make it illegal to record undercover videos in factory farms. Ag-gag laws have been defeated in 13 states, but eight states already have these anti-whistleblower laws on their books. Undercover video is one of PETA's primary weapons. But they employ other tactics as well, many of which have been dreamt up by my guest today, Dan Matthews, who has been with the organization for nearly three decades. In the 1980s, Matthews enlisted the stars of the television show The Golden Girls, B. Arthur, Rue McClanahan, and Betty White, to take a stand on wearing fur. Cruelty is not fashionable. Don't wear fur. Support the people who fight for animal rights. Matthews, now one of PETA's senior vice presidents, went on to create the Rather Go Naked Than Wear Fur campaign, which featured people, most notably celebrities, shedding their clothes in protest of those who sell or wear fur. You know, I'm from the MTV generation, and PETA's all about the casework, going undercover in laboratories and slaughterhouses and circuses and busting places that are, run afoul of the law, and there's a lot of that. But um, I'm from the generation that knows that a lot of people aren't even watching the news anymore. There was cable, then there was the internet. There's so much competition for people. You started attention. with Peter Wynn. 1985. And what was it like then? There was 10 of us working out of a house in suburban Maryland outside of D.C. Um, I was in the basement answering what phones. What town? Uh, Rockville. Rockville. How far was Silver Spring from Rockville? About tw 20 minutes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Our yeah. first case where we uh, busted a, an animal experimenter who was 
cutting the limbs and the nerves of uh, primates and then using a cigarette lighter and a pair of pliers to try to get the dead nerves to spring back to life. It was just the most ungodly torture chamber, and that was PETA's first big case. Front page of the Washington Post, the guy got his grant revoked, and it set the stage for us doing so many more cases inside laboratories. And that really made PETA's reputation on a, on a national and international level, what they, people refer to as the Silver Spring Monkeys case. That's exactly right. That's what PETA is all about. We are here to show you things you really don't want to see. You believe them. Yeah. That's why they're there. That's why. That's why we exist. We are not, I mean, it's fantastic that we now have 3 million members and uh, PETA India and PETA Europe and PETA Australia. It's great. We never set off to be a large organization. We set off to be the cutting edge organization who just wanted to bring the facts to people. And uh, aside from the philosophical idea, just see what it's like for animals in the circus or in a laboratory or in a slaughterhouse. And we do that primarily through uh, our undercover investigations. But to supplement the investigations, to reach the, um, the masses, we do not live in intellectual times. We live, you know, in very, very um, uh, imbecilic times in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. How does that affect the work that you do? It affects the work we do because if we, you know, say I, I go and meet with uh, Nightline or 2020 and they say, oh, this footage is too upsetting. We know our viewers are going to change the channel and put on an E-True Hollywood story. So sorry, but we're not going to break your cruelty case. I come back to them and say, okay, great. Well, Pamela Anderson is doing a photo shoot for our uh, Rather Go Naked Than Wear Fur ad. Are you in? And they line up. So sure. my job so you is, had to play their game to a degree I would to love, market your message. I would love to rewrite the rules so that the media was a little bit more intelligent. And I got to tell you, for all the sensational things involving celebrities or sex that we do, there are 15 pitches we did that died because they were too serious. Right. So we are just— uh, Wasn't it always that way, or you think it's getting worse over time? Or do you just feel it's worse? There were two things that happened. One is with the uh, advent of— Cable in in the I mean cable's been around since the eighties but it really really flourished in the early nineties and people had a lot more choices of what to watch and I remember I had a meeting at ABC News with a producer who told me uh, we've run your cases before but now the ratings uh, system is such that we know not just what shows people are watching but the precise moment they change the channel and we ran a graphic uh, story about uh, rodeos and how the uh, groins get pinched on on the uh, animals. And we lost a quarter of our viewers that when that footage came on. So I'm afraid we're not going to be talking any more serious cases with you. So that's when they started doing hour-long specials on Whitney Houston's drug problem and things like that. You know, we, uh, my degree is in history. And From I, where? Uh, American University in Washington. You went to AU mm-hmm. to study history. Right. And then when you finished at AU, what did you do? Well, my last year at AU, I had an animal rights group on, on campus. We were able to convince the university to stop the uh, poisoning of pigeons and to switch to netting, which was much more effective. Uh, we uh, showed Was that your introduction to yes. animal rights? Actually, my introduction to animal rights was in high school. That uh, Silver Spring Monkeys case that PETA launched in 1981 uh, was the laboratory run by Dr. Edward Taub. And in the wake of that bust, Edward Taub was being honored as the psychologist of the year at the Anaheim Convention Center outside of L.A., uh, and I was right near where I lived. And so my punk rock friends and I went and uh, participated in the protest. And that was the first time. Uh, it was PETA's first L.A. protest. And so I was, I think, 16. <laughs> and so and you, so you were in high school and you go to this protest. Yeah, my friend's mother heard about it. And so we thought, oh, God, you know, we're from the punk generation. Protest was so 16. That was your first exposure. Yeah, yeah. And was I, going I, I to went along because... Taub. That's right. So protest, which you became known for, was your first exposure. 
It was. It, it was became little, very good at protest eventually, correct? Eventually, yes. I, I just I had a little bit of disdain because I felt like, um, you know, there's always you've got to have new, fresh ways to affect change, and protest is one way, and we do that a lot. But there's a lot of other ways. Sure. There's, uh, ways of of luring people, and especially when it comes to habits. I mean, animal rights issues are about the things people eat and what they wear and the products they use. It's much more of a social issue than a political issue. So but we're we're going to get to that because obviously, there are a few subjects which are as complex as this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, even in my own life, I mean, you know, you get into a car and a car is filled with leather products. And there are many, many people who will say, uh, no, you can get a cloth interior, but not maybe the dashboard, or there's going to be some animal hide right. in that car somewhere. It's almost unavoidable. It's, you know, it's the sort of issue that we have, you know, in Virginia where I live, the roads were paved by slaves. Does that mean you don't drive on them? Right. There's just, you can't rewrite history. We just try to get people to look in the future and leave bad habits behind one by one or all Is there a linchpin, you think, to all of this? Meaning there are people who I talk to who will say, I could give up eating meat, but I couldn't give up eating poultry. I could give up eating meat and poultry, but I'll still eat fish. I'm going to wear leather shoes. I'm going to carry leather bags. I'm going to carry leather wallets. But I'm not going to go and buy a conspicuously leather-founded garment. There are people for whom they live their life, and in terms of practicality, there are gradations of their commitment to animal rights. There are people I know who are full-blown, you know, like yourself. they got the pleather and the vinyl and the wallets and the shoes and the belts and everything, totally vegan and so forth. But that takes time, mm-hmm. and that's a commitment. And traveling and making sure that you have access to your whole wheat bread and sprouts and avocado sandwich <laughs> it's not at the that airport. Difficult. No, no, but you're right. It's not that difficult, but people do perceive that it is difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think it's human nature for us to instantly recognize our differences with, our, which, with each other, and that's why we've got so much violence in the world and so much hostility. I think the better side of human nature is to try to recognize what you have in common with somebody and then let it drive from that. That's why I work with Republican meat eaters like Mary Madeline, who helps lead our efforts against the ag-gag bills. Or, uh, so you have people for example, who are not necessarily strict vegetarians, Absolutely. but there's components of the animal rights message that they embrace. Ag gag, exactly. anti-Zeus and circus, rodeo. Exactly. Kind of exactly right. So I think it's a matter of identifying which issue because there are certainly a lot of them. You know, some people get involved on one issue and then they evolve and become vegetarian or vegan or, you know, there's people like B. Arthur and the Golden Girls who were among our first supporters back in the 80s and they weren't vegetarian, but they hated fur and they hated animal testing and uh, they helped us get the mink subsidies yanked from uh, the federal crash budget. Crash test and, dogs. Exactly. I remember all those things from the early days, which was, you know, crash test dogs and pigs. They'd say that this makeup company wanted to be able to walk into a courtroom. Yes. And they wanted to be able to plop down uh, thick reams of documentation where they said, our mascara didn't cause the problem with this woman's eyesight. We blinded 14,000 rabbits in order to prove that this stuff has been tested. So that, the, was, that was part of PETA's first achievement in the 80s as we convinced Avon, Revlon, Estee Lauder, so many other companies to, to stop, stop testing. Yep. Right. And that, you know, we've, we've changed that, that industry. Does that remain today? It remains today. It's been threatened in a f- the last few years by China because China has these regulations that require cosmetics and products to be tested on animals. It's the old regulations that the Europe, uh, the EU, and the U.S. used to have. So we went to China knowing that you can't really protest there like you can here. We went there and said, all right, the EU doesn't use animal testing anymore. And in fact, it's illegal to test on animals for cosmetics in Europe. The U.S. has largely abandoned it. Please revise your regulations for China. 
And the Chinese officials, the equivalent of the FDA, told us, we don't want to hear from PETA and we don't want to hear from any one of the companies. But if you go away and gather up all the scientists who changed the regulations there and gather up all the companies and come back to us as a board, as a body, then we will listen. So PETA spent over $100,000 establishing this consortia and getting all these scientists and companies together. We went back to Beijing in December, presented them the findings, and to our thrilled <laughs> amazement, uh, Chinese officials said that that made total scientific sense. They've already initiated research projects at four Chinese universities to fine-tune the non-animal tests for China, and they say that within five years, there won't be product testing in China as well. So just shows the kind of different hats PETA wears uh, to get things accomplished. Well, I mean, but there are great accomplishments, obviously, whether it's involved with uh, crash testing. Sure. That was a fun one, the, the, uh, the crash test campaign. We got to yeah. disrupt the GM float in the Rose Parade dressed as rabbits and rats. <laughs> you did? Oh, yes. Now, when was that? What year was that? That was back in uh, the mid-'90s. Um, we did a whole lot of, of things to get their attention. One of the final things was GM wanted to sponsor Paul McCartney's U.S. tour, and Paul, me being a PETA member, brought their offer to us, and we said, you should probably refuse and tell them why. And he did, and then he gave us a free ad in the tour program about their animal tests. And that made such huge news that they finally threw in the towel. And after having killed 20,000 animals in crash tests, they changed their policy, and now they haven't killed any since then. And no major U.S. auto manufacturer None. crash tests. That's all computer That's models done. and so yep. forth. But there are those people who find that the methods you've used over the years have been very, very um, unfair, puerile, asinine. You've been attacked, as you know, obviously. They've really, really hit you pretty hard with uh, some of the things. And, and of course, the most uh, well-known examples of that are, you know, flinging buckets of blood on fashion models and um, the editrixes of magazines and so forth on the streets of New York. What was the thinking behind that then? I mean, I, I'm a supporter of PETA, and I'm a supporter of nearly all of what they do. But at that time, when you felt that you had to have that guerrilla style, who was the producer of those events and the author of that script? Was that you as well? Well, I, Who was the first person at PETA that said, let's throw animal blood on animal well, winter? No, nobody ever threw animal blood. I think uh, people used to spray paint uh, coats on the subways. And whether they were PETA members or not, I have no idea. Right. I carry stickers that say, I'm an asshole, I wear fur, and I very subtly put them on people. <laughs> Uh, I stickered Cindy Adams at a party once. You and did. I did, but I love her so well, much, and I think she's so funny that I saw her at the next party, and I said, Cindy, i got to confess, I'm the one that put the asshole sticker on you, but I love your column. And she thought it was so funny that she wrote a column about that. She wrote a column about you. You won her over. <laughs> we have to use aggressive tactics. I think the way you need do to— Do you still do? Of course we do. For example, what's the current aggressive tactic you're well, using? The, first, I'd like to say that we are a charity. We don't have the ad budget. We don't have the, the power that any one of the hundreds of targets that we have. We are a tiny little flea compared to a gorilla. That's what we're doing. And as a charity trying to seek this change, unless we're willing to be— as aggressive as our adversaries are in the way they market themselves as industries, we would be doomed to fail. PETA's aggressive tactics, which it's just like when there's an aggressive woman, they call her a bitch. When there's an aggressive charity, they call them terrorists. Well, um, we, we do what we, you know, we're not terrorists. We, we abide by the law. We do things that are aggressive. I had to, um, you know. Well, but I want to just, just for argument's sake, is spray painting people on subways wearing fur coats, is that abiding by the law? 
No, it's not. And that's never been a part of our program. So um, that was nothing that PETA called for that. No, but I think because PETA exists as the edgy group, people just loop any activity right. in with us. You're the usual suspects. Exactly. They get rounded up by And Claude we've you know, spent years trying to deny certain things. But in the end, it's like, well, let people believe what they want. And there's probably going to be somebody out there who won't wear fur because she doesn't want to have a $5,000 coat ruined by paint. And so maybe that's a small victory. So to go back for a minute... Um, you're in L.A., you go to the Taub protest. When does PETA come into the picture in your life? Well, when I was at AU and we had our animal rights group, um, there was I knew that PETA was down the street because I you know, got to know them uh, when their first case broke. So they were on your radar for a while? Oh, yeah, since they were founded. And so I would go to the PETA headquarters to get literature for our college group. And we did all these things. We showed slaughterhouse footage outside the school cafeteria at lunchtime, anything to ruin somebody's day. And uh, when I got out of college, um, they just offered me a job as the receptionist, and I was so thrilled. I um, college degree, and I landed a job making ten thousand dollars a year at an animal rights group. I felt at like at PETA. Yes. And what were some of the first things you worked on, or they were working on then? Um, we had uh, it was our first case about uh, undercovering the meat trade. How there's downed cows, how animals who don't even have the strength to walk. So to the downed cow issue was an issue back then. Oh in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. Absolutely. That still continues today. It continues today. And I remember um, that the people who handle our fundraising— So for people who don't know what the down cow issue is, describe that. Well, they don't give cows much— At a slaughterhouse. At a slaughterhouse. There are so many cows who are so sick, they're pumped full of drugs to ward off all the viruses they get in such close confinement. They're overweight. They're bedraggled. They're They're fed so fast so that they get fatter quicker— uh, that they are just these miserable, uh, you know, genetically modified monsters right. by the time they go to slaughter. And some of them are too weak to actually walk up the ramp, and they're dragged. Some of them are dragged kicking and screaming literally or have pitchforks that, that dump them on yeah, the slaughter line. put chains line. around them and drag them. Back then, uh, in fact, we got a call from a slaughterhouse worker in Pennsylvania uh, at the Mopac Hatfield plant. And he called to say that his job was to work right near the kill floor. His job um, was to cut off the hooves and lips of cows so that their skin could be peeled back for leather. The cows were arriving on a conveyor belt hoisted up by a hoof to this man, and they were supposed to already be unconscious through a captive bolt in their head, through their throat being slit. And because of the quota, because of the system, because of poorly trained illegal immigrant workers and faulty machinery— the cows were still fully conscious when they came around to him, and he said he would have to chop off one hoof while the other hoof came around and kicked him in the head. And he complained to the on-site plant inspector about this, and he was told to get back to work because they had a quota to keep. So this poor, illiterate, toothless guy called PETA and said, uh, they're not listening. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm calling as much for my own safety as for the animal cruelty, but can you get in here and document this so, and bring it to the State Department and how of did you? How did you do that? We went up. I went up with two PETA uh, investigators, met with them. It was thrilling. It happened to be on my birthday, and I remember it was the most exciting birthday I ever had, going to meet in a motel room uh, surreptitiously with this guy who remains, in my heart, one of the biggest heroes I've ever seen. He vouched for these two girls to come in. They had cameras hidden in their bags. Uh, as far as the slaughterhouse knew, they were just friends of his. Uh, he was able to tell them where to stand to show what was happening. 
They were able to do it over the course of a few days to show that it was routine problems, not a one-off problem. And to was show, it routine? Oh, yes. And the, and the evidence they captured on them was incontrovertible? It was incontrovertible, and I personally took it to the State Department of Agriculture in, uh, in Harrisburg and, and uh, lodged a formal complaint with the State Department of Agriculture, who apologized for the plant. They aired the footage the week that the World Series was on. So I remember the, watching uh, from the motel, and it was you know promos for the game and then teasers for this uh, atrocious slaughter house case that PETA uh, was launching. And that is why, uh, because of that, that is one of the first cases that led to the ag-gag bills, which have uh, they started trying to do that several what years year ago. What year was that? This was in the early 90s. So it was that long ago, it was 20 years ago, yes. that industry began to panic about this, this captured video, and you began to have the, the earliest forms of ag-gag proposals. That's right. What did proponents of ag-gag, or in their minds, uh, opponents of, of uh, this captured video, what did they say back then was the reason they had to have these ag-gag bills? And how are the, the ag-gag bills you're seeing now different than 20 years ago? Well, that was one of the first cases, and the meat industry was very embarrassed by it. There was obviously no refuting the evidence. Plus, we had this guy who worked there who went on camera in silhouette, but it was confirmed that he was a worker there exposing the cruelty and exposing what the conditions were. So there was no way they could refute it. Uh, after that case, there were countless others where we got into slaughterhouses in Iowa, in, in Texas, uh, a huge horse slaughter uh, ranch in Texas, uh, other places in several states. Um, and we were always very careful. We only re- would uh, pursue cases where you were allowed to film uh, legally. Some states you can't film without somebody's permission. So we only chose cases where we could legally film these places. So we didn't have unnecessary legal challenges from the facility. PETA has a very uh, tight legal department. So when we get in trouble, we know exactly what kind of trouble we're mm-hmm. getting into. And we usually avoid it at all costs. Uh, and we'll challenge laws. But uh, and with these investigations, they're always very hand-picked as for the jurisdiction. So where you see the processing of animals, uh, beef or lamb or any kind of poultry and so forth, uh, for food, you talk primarily about... Um, cruelty, and you talk about the conditions under which they're killed or not killed. You talk about the whistleblower and the, 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 what sounds almost like the skinning alive of this yes. cattle. At the same time, do you concern yourself with the health conditions of the, of, of the product itself, meaning the FDA is charged with, and, and Americans have been told again and again and again, they don't seem to be overly concerned about it, unfortunately, but they've been told again and again and again that the product itself has been tainted enough here and there. Big batches of meat called back because of uh, uh, E. coli. Right, and, so and E. coli is shit. And right. there are traces of feces in um, over 90% of meat packages. That's according to chicken. who? According to the USDA's own findings. So they, the USDA's own findings they, show that there's 90%. There's, there's and traces that can't be avoided. That cannot be avoided because the, the animals are killed in such uh, rapid-fire conditions, and they, they crap themselves during the slaughter process. Right. of course. You can, uh, I mean, you can buy any package of meat, and 90% of the time you'll find E. coli. You know that any time you eat meat, it's the poo-poo platter. When you say that the USDA, uh, which I do not have a lot of faith in. No, so if it's, they, they're, and, they're, and if they're admitting it, you know, it's probably 10 times worse than they're yeah. saying. I mean, they're, they're, they're just asleep at the switch most of the time. When you say that the USDA is telling you that 90% of the beef is contaminated with some, some amount, it could be just an insignificant amount per their measurements of E. coli, why do you think more and more people still eat meat? So, what, what has your work taught you about Americans and their diet and beef consumption? People want a dollar value meal. 
people are slaves to their habits, and these habits start really early, and that's why the bulk of PETA's resources go to campaigns that are to reach the youth. That's why we have uh, so many things that are maybe considered edgy by, by older people, but by teenagers who have a great sense of justice, and most children, of course, love animals, they really respond to it. Uh, we have hundreds of thousands of street teamers who are a part of our youth arm, PETA 2. We uh, get on concert tours to get stuff to kids. We are uh, very active in high schools, and it's one of the reasons, I think, now there's so much success and there's a, you know, back when PETA started, people thought a vegan was somebody from Las Vegas. Now every TV show has one and it's something that has become a part of our pop culture landscape. And I think a lot of that is because of uh, there's a generation now that has grown up with PETA in the background or the foreground, but we've been a cultural force. And I think it has made it something that people discuss at the dinner table. They don't always like what we do. They might uh, have a problem with some of the things we do. But overall, people have seen that we're uh, a charity that has made an impact in culture. And now it's, a, it's an impact that is actually gaugeable from the changes not only at the corporate level, but at a society's level. Right here in New York City, two weeks ago, they announced that it's the first elementary school to go all vegetarian right. because of the demand of kids. The, the, the kids, the kids instigated right. that demand. They went three days a week, and the kids wanted it all the time. And so it's great. What about... What's been a, a victory for you in terms of circuses and, and zoos and rodeos? Well, we have been— uh, Animals in performance. That's right. We have been uh, on Ringling Brothers Trail all across the country, and we have been documenting which of the animals uh, have crippling arthritis based on their walks. And how long has PETA been, been, been uh, uh, going toe-to-toe with Ringling? Uh, the at least 20 years, yeah. Right. I mean, since I've been there in 85, we would do protests. But then we started hiring uh, elephant experts, people who really knew how to assess the health of uh, Any these elephants. Any captured video of, of Ringling? We captured video. Uh, in three instances, we had video of elephants being beaten, an elephant that, that drowned. And we filed uh, a complaint with uh, the USDA asking that these cases be prosecuted. And under the George W. Bush administration, these cases were allowed to expire without any reaction whatsoever. So when Obama was elected and he hired a new USDA uh, secretary, we uh, had Pink, the singer Pink, who is a big elephant advocate, do a big blitz to get the Obama administration to reopen these cases uh, based on the video evidence. And they reopened the cases and they fined Ringling $270,000. And it sent shockwaves through the circus industry. Why do you think people who abuse these animals at Ringling Brothers, why do they do that? Why? Because the elephants won't obey the commands unless they are beaten with these bullhooks. It's these sharp metal. So this is the most significant aspect of this, which is something I would say over and over again about animals and performance, which is, you know, they don't come out of the womb with a top hat in one hand and a cane in the other. Exactly. In order to make these animals perform in ways that they were not meant to perform, they've got to be beaten and abused to do that. Exactly. And I think one of the most amazing whistleblower cases we ever had was uh, from Ringling's uh, elephant handler. We got a call from a guy who worked for 20 years. What was his name? I'm sorry, 11 years. I I, I can't uh, can't. say his name right now. Um, It's part of an ongoing ongoing process. But he worked there for 11 years. First, he was just kind of a lackey working in in the uh, animal compound. Then he became an elephant handler, an elephant trainer. And one of his jobs was to rip the baby elephants away from their mothers, dragging, kicking, and screaming. They tied them down. They beat them until they would stand on one leg, until they would stand on their head. They became completely reliant on the trainers. Food deprivation, beatings, shocks mm. to get them to perform these stunts that you see in the arena. And they have to start doing it when they're babies. Now, do independent, does Ringling or anyone like that? Because I want to be careful in terms of the, the legality of this. The people that are doing this to these animals in order 
to make them ready for their close-up, so to speak. Are they ringling employees or they are, are they ringling, independent contractors? No, they are ringling and employees. And ringling leases the animal. Because you would and assume they, they a, would do the they other. They are very careful to only hire people at their compound who they... Uh, they vetted they, them. Exactly. And this guy worked there for 11 years, and he wasn't in the elephant compound at first. But what happened was he told his wife when he got back to the trailer after work... Uh, about his work in the elephant compound. And his wife said for years, I don't mind you working at the circus, but I think it's awful what you're doing with the elephants. And they took pictures for years of the training methods, not because they thought they were cruel, but, hey, look, it's me beating an elephant and tying a baby elephant down. And his wife, a few years ago, uh, got cancer and on her deathbed said, please uh, release release this information. Uh, It's the one thing that I ask. He called us and he turned all. What of, year was that? This was about five years ago. So this is still an ongoing it's, situation. Yeah, because it fueled so much uh, fire for a whole bunch of legal cases trying to get the federal government to use the Endangered Species Act to stop this this kind of treatment because these are actually endangered elephants that they're we've now got the goods from their own trainer on. Ringling Brothers had to go on the Today Show and talk about how it's just these pictures are misleading. Uh, they're really just gently trying to teach these animals to do things. But people could see that, that, that from the photos and the fact that they're separated from their mothers and beaten and shocked. Uh, Ringling buys in bulk this gray makeup that they put on the elephants uh, when they're paraded before the, the crowds to hide the blood and the bruises. Uh, from bullhooks. From bullhooks, yes, because they, they, they beat them behind the knees, behind the ears, the areas that, that are most sensitive. And they actually put these bullhooks up their sleeves so that only the metal hook comes out so that people can't see them very casually jab the elephants. Peter's working very aggressive legally because in each city, in most cities across the country, they have laws aimed at keeping sick animals from working. And we know that several animals have crippling arthritis and they should not be allowed to work because of those laws. And so we are uh, working with city governments. The problem is that the local animal control, they know about dogs and cats. They don't know about exotic Exotics. animals like elephants who are just passing in through town for a week right. or so. So we've hired elephants. That's one of the benefits that Ringling has is that they're always passing through town. Exactly. And so what PETA has done is we've hired elephant experts and sent them around the country to work with local animal control to recognize these things right. and to be to there be for the for inspection. In a minute, my guest, Dan Matthews, Senior Vice President of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, explains why PETA actually owns a stock in Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
I'm late. I'm late. For a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, as it's known, has gained notoriety with its high-profile, attention-grabbing undercover videos and other shock tactics used to change the behavior of large and powerful industries. But as my guest Dan Matthews explains, they don't just fight from outside the system. We were able to pressure Burger King and McDonald's uh, and, and a lot of others to make some basic improvements. We had to fight hard for McDonald's to stop buying meat from slaughterhouses that failed inspection. We look at very molecular level at the government regulations and what the— uh, And did they agree to that? They did agree to that, but it took seven years of campaigning for yeah. even to get them uh, to, to go to that, that basic way. Right now, we are trying to persuade McDonald's and KFC to stop boiling chickens alive in defeathering tanks. Why don't they kill them first? Well, in Europe, they've changed to much more modern, more humane standards. But they here, cut their throats. They put them in a room. They take out a part of the oxygen. The chickens go to sleep, and they never wake up. There's no gas. There's nothing like that. It's just they take out part of the oxygen, and they go to sleep. Here, we're still using old methods because the factories have been doing it since the, the 50s, where they hoist them by a, a foot into a, a, a conveyor belt. There's a spinning blade, which is supposed to uh, either chop their head off or slice their throat. But the chickens, who look like little old men, uh, desperately swing to not get Miss cut the by the blade. Exactly. And then they're dumped into the vat of... So it's their uh, bad luck if they end up alive in the boiling tank. Uh, uh, right. And boiling and them defeathers them. It, it boiling, exactly. It's the defeathering tank. And so mm-hmm. when you have a chicken McNugget or a, a KFC meal, you're eating a bird that was boiled alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how they died. Possibly. Uh, yeah. Most likely. Yeah, most, most likely. Possibly. And uh, we've got Good all the chance, footage, yeah. and, and uh, we speak at their shareholders' meetings. We're trying to get them to just at least match what is being done in Europe. They're very, very slow to change because it's a you know, million-dollar layout to upgrade their facilities. And why should they have to do that? If they can save two cents and show shareholders that they've saved two cents per bird, doesn't matter how despicable the methods are. They think that's progress. And so as a cultural force, PETA has been able to infiltrate stockholders. We buy uh, uh, shares of stock in all of our adversaries and raise this issue, and we try to get more percentages each time so that shareholders take this issue more seriously. But it takes years. It takes new generations of shareholders to come up and, and insist on these changes. 
But, um, but they're happening. We also meet with the companies to try to get them to uh, switch their methods, and we have some success with that. Well, what about augmenting or, or, or modifying the menus themselves to provide healthier options? Is that your bag at all? Or no? It is definitely our bag, <laughs> um, uh, and, and it's, uh, other people are doing it as well. But we persuaded KFC in Canada to add a vegan chicken sandwich on their menu, which was a real feat, especially because that guy who owned that, that chain was very hostile at first. We do uh, veggie burger giveaways all over the country. We do promotions every season. Uh, we go to gas stations whenever there is a uh, gas prices spike in a particular town and uh, offer to help people fill their tank if they try a new vegan thing. And it gets a huge amount of press in these uh, towns where we do it. We uh, have a pretty good response, I would say. Was there ever a time, did you ever sit there and look at uh, material and look at evidence and look at a story and you said, we're going to go in and we're going to kill these people. And you went in and you got it wrong. Has that ever happened? Our lawyers are too good for that. Everything that we but do is so mean, vetted. I don't even mean in a malicious way, even accidentally. Did you ever sit there? Or were you about to? No, we're, because of the nature of the industries that we target are very litigious. We are dead solid. Super cautious. Absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, the, uh, the evidence is always so overwhelming and so hideous that sometimes we have to tone down the worst things because people literally can't stomach them. Like the, the fox on the Chinese fur farm who's skinned alive and the only thing left that's furry is the poor fox's eyelashes still beating as he's gasping? Just uh, it looks like a, it looks like a on video on video. That's what got Martha Stewart to finally renounce fur and host our video expose condemning fur. My favorite thing is really reaching people who. Um, what was had, a victory in the fur industry? What what designer? Calvin Klein. So Calvin Klein was a hero there. He yeah, that he illustrates really why uh, Peta has to do uh, actions the way we do. When we first started targeting designers back in, in the 90s, Calvin was the designer who had, was most visible with fur. He'd had a line for 19 years. We asked to meet. We asked to show him the evidence, and we never got a call back. So I went to his office uh, and cased the place. I wore all black, so it looked like I might be part of the fashion pack that was sure. there. I made friends with a security guard uh, and came back the next day with a dozen other interns and we went up and took over his office, and we put literature on all the desks. We were screaming, uh, chanting, uh, Calvin Klein kills animals. Uh, somebody spray-painted kills animals beneath the Calvin Klein logo. Uh, spray-painted where? Uh, his wall had a Calvin Klein silver embossed logo. Which wall? In, in his office, in his office uh, at the entryway. Right. And so somebody. Did so that. what happened? Again, I just want to because the people that are your critics talk about those things, which are acts of. We knew uh, that we had to do something with nobody returning our calls in the fashion world. No, no, I'm, I'm not so, questioning um, your motives. That I understand. But I'm saying when you deface someone's private right. property, what happens oh, to you then? There was, everybody went to jail. The, the cops were called and it was— uh, And you got arrested. Uh, yes, everybody, everybody got arrested. Everybody went to jail. Everybody went to jail. But Calvin uh, was so mortified by this— <laughs> That he <laughs> and we did we timed it because he was about to get some big award and he yeah. thought you know so yeah. uh, the Nobel Prize for fashion he uh, I pick up my phone uh, four days later and it's Calvin Klein's uh, vice president asking if I would come in for a meeting I got to tell you I was much more nervous going back as an invited guest than as a <laughs> as a protester and we sat down and I showed him the video showing how beavers are drowned in underwater traps and chinchillas are genitally electrocuted and all the other horrible Anal things electrocution. Anal electrocution exactly of foxes this is to, and, prefer, to preserve the, the, the pelt and everything yeah. exactly I'll never forget when I first learned that I thought I was going to faint and it's dozens of animals for one coat that, that has that kind of suffering 
I went back to his office and he said, oh, leave the video and I'll watch it. I said, no, I'm not going to leave the video. I'm going to stay here until you watch the video. So they had to get somebody to set up the TV. We watched the video and he said, he was horrified. He said, (laughs) I have spent 19 years avoiding that video. And now I can't in good conscience use fur anymore. And And he didn't. And I said, fantastic, but I need it in writing. How did you get so tough? Well, I, I, How did you get this way? I, I grew up in the punk scene. I don't know. Maybe uh, I, I, I always How did you had— you get to where you're in Calvin Klein's office saying, I'm not leaving until you watch the video, and then— Well, there was actually the credits are rolling, I need it in writing. I had a copy of Fur World, the trade magazine, that said that Calvin had just inked a deal for a new line. So uh, after he agreed to do it, I agreed to put it in writing, and I said, and what about this? And he said, uh, don't, you can't believe everything you read. I'm out of the fur trade. Uh, so he called in his communications vice president, Lynn Tesoro was her name, I'll never forget. And we did a mutual statement, and it was in the New York Times the next day. And it sent shockwaves throughout the fashion world. Uh, and it showed that, you know, obviously— Has he remained faithful to that since then? He's not only remained faithful to that, but he's become a good friend. And he always tells he's me— He's an extraordinary guy, Calvin. He's said, you know— Extraordinary man. If you ever worry about going too far, just think of this case. And this is the only way to get people like, uh, like me yeah. to get our attention, because in the fashion world, we don't care about but anything. But there are people that have swung the other way who actually take pride in— they're, they're, they're the last— uh, remaining bastion of fur. Yeah. And Fendi. What, yeah, I mean, I met with Michael Kors and said, you're doing broadtail lamb. These are baby lambs who are literally killed as they're born before there's even the afterbirth washed off because the afterbirth makes the skin so much softer. These animals, the only thing they see in the world is a club coming down to beat them to death in the head. And this is what broadtail lamb is. And how can you in good conscience sell this? And he said, as long as it's not illegal, wherever they're producing it, I'll do it. I don't care. If there's a market for it, I'll do it. Um, and he you know, said this to my face. It's actually in my book. I, I wrote a, mm-hmm. a memoir committed. Which How long ago did this conversation take place? About eight years ago. And he's been unrepentant since. That's right. right. So you're in this, uh, in what we'll call you know, the Hollywood walk of fame of the animal rights world. Um, and in that group, people wouldn't put you with them. But Animal Liberation Front is, of course, another well-known organization. Do, have you always kept them at arm's length? Have you had any kind of contact with them? What's your relationship like with them? Actually, I got involved in animal rights through the Animal Liberation Front when I was in high school. I was not involved myself. but this They guy, were involved in the towel protest? My best friend in high school, Connie, uh, and I write about this in my book, Committed, because the statute of limitations has expired long ago. My uh, best friend, Connie, would do surveillance outside of City of Hope uh, and outside of other laboratories. Laboratories you see Riverside uh, before these laboratories were raided, not just to get the animals out, but to get out the documents showing that the research protocols weren't followed and that the animal welfare guidelines weren't followed. This was even before PETA was so known. So uh, that was my link, and uh, that's how I got involved was through a direct action sort of uh, point of view. But uh, to me, I, I mean, I grew up in a, a rundown apartment complex that didn't allow animals, and I had a mother that urged us to bring in all the cats that were being abused by bullies in the alley. Uh, people are really, kids can be really mean to animals. Uh, and I just grew up with the, the understanding that, you know, when, if an animal's being abused, you do something about it. I grew up with the idea that you're supposed to re- react and correct and expose and fight this sort of abuse. So what's your relationship with ALF now? 
Um, there's none. I mean, I haven't. Uh, you feel you have to be very careful. I mean, when you talk in one breath about the caution that you use, that you employ in terms of your protest work, because of the litigiousness of the Ringling Brothers and so forth and uh, uh, other co- corporations, what's that like for you in terms of of your relationship with the Canadian left? Do you have to keep them at arm's length? Well, I think, think it's just it's all different now. Now we have whistleblowers that are on the inside who get us into film. You know, the laboratories that were raided back in the '80s have become bunkers now. I don't think that there's much of a way to get inside. And I think what PETA has done in a a very savvy way due to our lawyers is we are in it for the long haul. We are an an organization that has lots of roots, but we want to be around for the long haul. So we're very, very careful to pick cases that spotlight whistleblowers' findings, that are are lawful investigations of cruelty, and they become so successful that now the meat trade is trying to change the laws so that we can even work with whistleblowers to get this evidence of cruelty. Which is ag-gag. Which is the ag-gag bills. People struggle no doubt, with um, achieving a kind of deep, deep ascended level of devotion toward animal rights and uh, a level of purity in terms of their diet and their consumption and so forth. But if you said to them, here's one thing I think you should give up, what would you say? I would tell them to watch our 10-minute Paul McCartney video called Meet Your Meat, which you had had hosted as well at some point, and we updated it with new footage. And decide for yourself. Right. Decide for yourself what you want to give up. And you may find that you had no idea that, that chickens endured that or that pigs endured that. Or, you know, just I, I don't think people should think of it as a, a devotion to, to, uh, to animals necessarily. It's just like it's just basic respect. And it's respect for yourself as well. But I think it it's is, a process. But it is a primal. It, it is. I mean, I want to come clean with you and be honest with you, which is I gave up beef in 1991 and I gave up poultry in 1992 you know, I mean, I'm I'm a big, big, no hypocrisy supporter of uh, the animals in performance, and I'll never go to a circus or a zoo or so forth. I'm big on the crash testing and and a lot of things. I'm really, really strong about. But I would remember that, that I mean, I went and didn't eat poultry from 1992 to 2004, and then I snapped, and I ate a turkey sandwich in a moment of complete freakout. My friend ordered a turkey sandwich, and I was sitting there. It was like a scene from Altered States where, like, the primal gene came leaping through me, and I ate the turkey sandwich. Well, there's nothing like that flesh-ripping sensation. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> nowadays, funny. there's the products that you can get that have that same yes. chewy, gristly. That's, what, that's, what, that, well, that's where I wound up going. I he love said, There's so many great ones, especially in New York. There's fantastic restaurants all where? over town. But Blossom has – you can get a bacon cheeseburger at Blossom. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's really, really, really something. Is it good? It is good. When did you it stop eating good. meat? I stopped eating meat when I was 14 on a fishing trip with my dad. I used to go fishing and never all the went time. back. I never went back. The only kind of animal I ever killed was a fish, and so that's where I started because I, 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 uh, I used to get beat up for being gay and for being a punk rocker in high school. And uh, one day uh, between classes, some kid hauled off and slugged me in the stomach, and I was doubled over, uh, out of breath, laying on the ground, gasping for air. And I looked up, and there was just all these people staring down, looking at me and laughing. And I, I couldn't even speak. I couldn't breathe. A few weeks later, I was on a fishing trip with my dad, and I caught a flounder. And it was a big, heavy fish, got him on the deck, two eyes on one side of his head. Somebody stomped on him, pulled the hook out of his mouth. And I looked down, and here's this poor creature gasping for breath, Mm -hmm. looking up at the circle of people standing around him, and everybody was looking down and laughing at him. And I thought, wait a second, now I'm the bully. Mm -hmm. I went vegetarian then, except for it took a a little while longer with chicken. 
And I went vegan uh, a few years later in 1985 when I started working at PETA. Right. Uh, when I learned more about that. But Dairy it was, as well? It was, oh, yeah, yeah. But it was the visceral thing that I had just plucked this creature from the bottom of the ocean into this horrible world with these people just laughing at his misery. Mm-hmm. And I thought, who the hell am I to do that? Mm-hmm. So that was a, the turning point moment in my uh, life to not want to participate in blood and guts. Of course, the hamburgers and stuff that you get in the drive-thru, you don't see the, the, the chain of violence that you're responsible for, but it hit right. me right home that day. And um, that completely changed my, my thinking about this issue. My friend Mary Brosnahan is the executive director of Coalition for the Homeless, and she has given her professional life. I mean, she's a grown woman with a child, and she's worked for, I think, 25 years with uh, Coalition for the Homeless. It's been her professional career since she was a very young woman. And you similarly are a couple years shy of being 50 years old. It's hard to believe that the eternally youthful, the Peter Pan, as I'd like to think of you, of of, uh, the animal rights movement, Dan Matthews, the great Dan Matthews, is almost going to be 50. But uh, you yourself have given your professional life to one cause and to one group of people. (laughs) And I was wondering as as we fade out here, why? Why have you stayed with PETA all this time? Well, because it goes back to my history degree. I know I've studied other movements throughout history, and I've studied what made the women's movement finally click, the civil rights movement, and it was always, without exception, agitation. There always had to be a cutting-edge group that may not have been popular in its day, but historically was deemed the breakthrough organization to put this issue into the public discourse and finally get some change. And so... um, uh, luckily, I'm a kind of a, a obnoxious person, so I have no problem being an agitator. No. But I, 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 you know, have a really clear focus on what we're doing and what the outcome can be and what the outcome has been. We've got so many great cases of success now, and all of them show you that— You guys have had a lot of successes. And I think agitation— I don't think you're obnoxious, but I think you're determined. <laughs> I think you're committed. So beyond the bacon cheeseburger that you refer to at Blossom, what does um, one of the great princes of the animal rights movement, the great Dan Matthews, what does Dan Matthews have for dessert? Um, I What's like, your go-to vegan dessert? I really like sorbet. You can find it anywhere. It's usually good. I know it sounds <laughs> it's that really, simple. I know it sounds really faggy, but that's you know, <laughs> what, what can I say? <laughs> it's that simple. Yes, exactly. No tofuti cuties. I like that stuff. I mean, when you find it, I, I, I really like ethnic foods. I really like spicy things. I'm not. A, I don't have a big sweet tooth, but you know, you can find a Goldenberg's peanut chew in any drugstore. That's vegan. We have on our website uh, even stuff that you can find. Uh, you know, at 7-Eleven or Target, that's vegan. But um, I, you can access I vegan food. Yeah. I rarely go to a vegetarian restaurant. I go to wherever I happen to be for a meeting and grab what I can. And now it's getting so easy. It's I think a new generation has decided it doesn't want to make the same mistakes as our, our, our grandparents and parents that died of heart disease or got whatever form of cancer and now Alzheimer's. We're just evolving as a species away from a meat-based diet, just as we've evolved away from other bad practices in the past. I think we're just evolving emotionally and spiritually away from this idea that uh, animals have to die for us to live. It's, uh, actually, animals dying for us is keeping us from living fully. Dan Matthews says he's always been drawn to extremes and finds traditional activism dreary. This fall, he'll be working with former TV game show host Bob Barker, who's been a vegetarian for over 25 years, on PETA's new campaign, Food for Thought. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. 
I'm late. I'm late. Very, very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more more info now.